I want you to think about the last hard thing you did. I mean, a really hard thing. One of those that really took a lot of grit, a lot of, a lot of perseverance, a lot of determination. Um, I mean, it could have been making a move. Northwest Arkansas, you left to where, and I'm going, where? Where is Bentonville, Arkansas? You know, it could have been something like that. It, it, it could have been the toughest thing you ever did was to stay in the relationship that you're in right now. The hardest thing you've ever done. Oh, the, the latest thing. Let's just keep it to the latest thing. One of the later things that I've done uh, that, that's been difficult was when Lori and I, uh, and this goes, I got to hear the whole sentence, when Lori and I celebrated 25 years, that wasn't the hard thing. That was the good thing. But what we did on our 25th anniversary when we were celebrating it was we climbed Mount Kilimanjaro together as just one of those kind of, hey, we're, we're old now. We know we're old, but hey, we can still do this kind of determinations uh, that, that we had. And I can remember it was hard. It got harder after every step. And as we were climbing up the mountain, uh, every day the air got a little thinner. And, you know, when you get to the point that there's, you're walking in this lunar landscape because there's no vegetation up there, because there's not enough air up there, it's, you know you're in some uh, difficult, air, uh, difficult situations. And the night that we were going to summit, they wake you up, like you've even been asleep, at 11 o'clock at night. And because you're already out of adrenaline flowing through your veins because you've hiked all day long and you had maybe four or five hours to go into your tent. And then you wake up at 11 and you hike all night long under this incredible canopy of stars. Talk about the stars singing his praises. And you're, you're just walking up there, just shuffling your way up the side of this mountain to get to the, uh, to get to that fourth highest peak on the planet. And as you're, as you're climbing there, literally it's so difficult that as I'm shuffling my feet, I'm remembering, they say, drink water, drink water, drink water as, as you're going. And so I'm taking little sips from my, my camel pack. And, but it was, the air was so thin that when you're at that elevation, you don't like just, uh, you're not talking, you're, you're not drinking, you're like either drinking or breathing, but you can't do both. And so you'll scoot your feet a little bit, take a sip, and then you will have to breathe some. And then you'll scoot a little bit more, and then you'll breathe some. It's, it's incredibly taxing on the body. Clearly, no doubt, the hardest thing physically uh, to ever make it to that point. And so that was a mountain to climb. I want to invite you spiritually to climb a mountain with me. One that I've not climbed in 27 years in ministry. One that I've been avoiding decline in 27 years of ministry. I have been pushing it off. It's like, okay, I know I need to, but I haven't and I won't. And it was a year and a half ago, whenever God began to lay on my heart, this idea that, hey, Mike, you need to lead the church through a study of the book of Romans. Now, again, for the average Joe out there, book of Romans, book of Smomans, who cares what book it is? It's just another book in the Bible, right? Not exactly. I will, I will tell you this, that it will be the, the equivalent of climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. It will not be for the faint at heart. It will not be an easy. There will be time because of the density of climbing uh, there, the air and the, uh, and the severity and the magnitude of it. It will be difficult. It's be the equivalent of in the past 12 months, we've studied through the book of Colossians and the book of Philippians. Okay. Four chapters, pretty easy in and out. It's like hiking the Ozark natural forest. Okay. It's like going out, you see beautiful vistas, you're getting, you get fresh air. It's a, it's an incredible experience wonderful climate, all that kind of stuff. Did you, you were enriched when you climbed, when you hiked through the Ozark Natural Forest. Okay. Some great places here in Arkansas, but it's not the same whenever you climb and hike a mountain such as Kilimanjaro or Everest or any of those other uh, great mountains out there. Romans would be the equivalent Romans is to Everest what Colossians and Philippians would be equal to uh, the Ozark Natural Forest. You will get a workout. It will be an experience. You will be enriched at both levels, but one will require more of you. One's going to require more of you and more of us and more of me like I have never done before. So please, let's be in prayer for one another that as we hike up this mountain that we will have the attitude and the fortitude and the, and the commitment and the grit to do this climb together. Now, it's important to understand that this is an incredibly 
dense book, and it was written at the hands of, of the Paul had an amanuensis, which is basically a collaborator in his writings, and he writes it at Paul's dictation from a house uh, in Corinth, just outside of Corinth actually, Gaius' house, who was the first believer in Corinth, and he writes this letter, and he writes the letter from Corinth to the believers in Rome. Now, Corinth is probably one of the most immoral, ungodly cities in history, and Rome is one of the most imperial rule, emperor worship kind of idolatrous cities in the world, okay? So you've got these two far from God cities, and Paul is in the middle, and he's writing to a group of believers, many of them he's not even met. There's 24 mentioned in chapter 16, if you read it for yourself, and you'll see he knows some of the people there, but he's introducing himself in this letter. He's never been to Rome. He wants to go to Rome. He wants to see the people in Rome, but he's writing them in a, in, in a different tone than he writes most of his letters. But I want us just to understand some things as we jump into this study about Romans, okay? Romans 1 is a comprehensive book, and I'm talking comprehensive. It goes from the beginning to the end of life. It covers all the questions of life that you have. Okay, I I mean that. I'm not trying to oversell it. I'm trying to say it's comprehensive in its nature. This is what uh, John Calvin said, great theologian of years gone by, 1500s. He said, "A man, uh, if a man understands Romans, he has a sure road open to help him understand the entire Bible." You get Romans. You've unlocked the pathway into the rest of the New Testament, into the rest of the Bible. R.C. Sproul, a recent, uh, 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 excuse me, a theologian who passed away just recently, said this, I really do believe that if there is any one individual book out of the 66 which God has used to change lives more, change lives more than any other, it is the book of Romans. You cannot read and really digest the book of Romans and not be changed. It is a life changing, life-altering book. Now, there's all manner of depth that we can go. And so let me undersell the depth that we're going to go, okay? Uh, We can go as deep and as long and as wide as you want to go. If you wanted to be dedicated to this series, I would encourage you to do a couple things. One is get one of these archaic, I know they're kind of old, you might have a few of them laying around the house, it's called a Bible, but you might bring one of these things, all right? Or you might, if you're one of those who takes notes on the digital and you can do the digital, go ahead and, and do that. But somehow, have a journal, have something that you're taking notes, asking yourself questions, because I'm going to challenge you to jump into this with both feet. It's considered the constitution of the Christians, okay? If you want to understand kind of your role and how you fit into the big scheme of things, but this could take forever. Rick Warren took a year and a half to delete Saddleback Community Church through it. I'm planning on spending 20 weeks Okay, not saying I'm better than Rick Warren. I'm just saying you're not going to get as much as you would have if you would have gone out to Saddleback Community Church. Or Martin Lord Jones, uh, who, who, t- who taught for 13 years every Friday verse by verse at Westminster Chapel in England. He taught for 13 years through the book of Romans. Verse by verse. Again, you're going to get it in 20 weeks with me. So if you think 20 weeks is long, you could go a lot longer. Caleb, our son in Georgia, was at a church and uh, started attending the church right when they started the book of Romans. Took the pastor one year to get to chapter 7. That's how dense it was. 16 chapters. So uh, he could not, he, he didn't even finish. He, was, he changed post before uh, he even finished the study of Romans. So there's so much to this. I'm underselling what I'm going to present to you. I'm just hopefully going to whet your appetite that you in your own study, you in your own communitas groups, you in your own Bible study groups will have deeper dive conversations into the book of Romans. All right? So I'm just going to whet the appetite. But let's give a 30,000-foot overview to understand how we're going to package or unpackage the book of Romans if you were to kind of put it in, into blocks, into periods, into segments. One is we're going to understand this through the, through the lens of mosaic, how God takes the brokenness of our lives, okay, the brokenness of our lives, and he displays his beauty. That's what I hope we're going to see by the end. We're going to see how does God do that? How does, how does God take my dumpster fire life and make it whole and beautiful again? 
Is that even possible? Can God take this, uh, you know, the life that I've messed up or keep messing up and I can't seem to get it figured out, you know, or the life that I know people, you know, are thinking they're living up here, but they're really not, and you're they're fooling themselves. But how can we get authentic, true beauty of God radiating from the inside out? Not doing the religious gig where we clean up the outside and hope nobody else notices what's really going on on the inside. That's religion. That's hypocrisy. We're not talking about that. We're talking about God doing, taking the broken pieces of our life and displaying his beauty through it. Now, what could that look like? It's going to look like in several sections of this. So we're going to be in the back of the book today. It gives us greater context of what, what, what's going on in Rome, what's happening in Rome. We're going to be in chapter 14 and 15 today, so you could be finding Romans 14 and 15. But where we're going to go beginning in a couple of weeks is we're going to be in chapter 1. And chapter 1 through chapter 3, verse 20, is where, really where we look at brokenness. What does our brokenness look like? Our our shattered dreams and lives. Whenever you think about what happened in Parkland, Florida, when you think about the brokenness of society, when you think, how are we ever going to fix society? How are we ever going to fix my own mess? We got to deal with our brokenness. We got to embrace it. We got to understand it. We got to dissect it. We got to pull it apart. And we got to say, this is what I did. I'm going to tell you right now, okay? Put on your hiking boots because for several weeks, we're going to be down deep and dirty. And it's not going to be fun and it's not going to feel good. And you may not walk out of here with a warm fuzzy. But here's the reality. We've got to deal with the brokenness. We've got to embrace the brokenness. We've got to go backward before we can go forward. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to take a couple of weeks and we're going to kind of plow through that together. But we're going to deal with our brokenness. And then secondly, we're going to deal with God's restoration. This is when God starts putting us back together again. This is the broken pieces that are out there. This is God's plan. You'll notice that from chapter 3 to chapter 8, that's what the lion's share of the book is going to deal with. How does God take our brokenness and put it back together? What was his plan? What was his design? How was his redesign? How does he work, as it says at the end of chapter 8, how does he work all things together for good according to his riches and glory? How, how does he cause all this shambled up mess, this brokenness, come together again in beauty? We're going to talk about our passion and our and God's plans and how when we understand the full change in our life, how that should cause us to look externally and understand how uh, God has a passion for the world. God has a desire for the nations. How do we fit into that and how does God's big plan fit together in that? And then we're going to end with understanding our beauty from outside, from the inside out. How's God going to reveal himself? How is God going to do his great work in us? So that's kind of the the format of where we're going, and it's comprehensive in in nature. So here's the challenge to you. For the next two weeks, between now and the time we come back to this series, because we'll have one weekend next weekend, but between now and then, I want you to peel back the layers as much as you can of chapter 1 of Romans. Read Romans 1. Read Romans 1 again. Take your own notes. Discuss it amongst yourself. Talk about it with your spouse. Anybody that's a significant person in your life that you invite along in this Romans journey with them, invite them along and let's be a part of it because it's going to be comprehensive. Number two, it's going to be intense. This is put on your big boy pants and let's do this. It is for that for me. Colossians, let me just give you an example. So, uh, so Colossians and Philippians, which we've done in this past 12 months, it would take me about 15 to 18 hours from start to finish to, de- to, to develop a message. That's pretty normal. Uh, and I feel like I'm pretty efficient with my time, but that's about the time to study, time to pray, time to do research, time to go back and do that all again, again and again and again, rework it, rewrite it. It's like writing a term paper every single week, single space, seven pages. I know that's how long it needs to be for me to have the content I need for Sunday morning. So... That takes about 15 to 18 hours of my week. Already in this message alone, 30 hours on this message. 
because of the density of the passage. I got more material than I can give. There's so much to it. Again, we are going to be in very thin air when we're, when we're hiking up this mountain. So we're going to have to have good lung capacity as, as we go. But let's give it the context. Again, today is a lot about building and understanding the context of Romans, how it is developed, why, who, who is Rome. It's only mentioned, in fact, Rome is only mentioned about six times, seven times in the entire New Testament. So therefore, how does it become a significant uh, church that even to this day, continuously, from the time that a church was founded, Rome is the only city in the scriptures that we can point to that has a continuous gospel witness all the way to today. Think about that for a moment. Can't say that about Ephesus. Can't say that about Colossae. Can't say that about Philippi. Can't say that about Thessalonica. That there's been a gospel witness in Rome from all of that time. Until today, it is a comprehensive. So let's understand Paul's journey. Journey number one, Paul becomes a believer out of this life of persecution and killing Christians and all that kind of stuff. And his first journey takes him with Barnabas around to this Galatia region, about the middle of Turkey, that northwest part from Antioch uh, to, to Turkey, middle of Turkey. And that was kind of the first place he went. And he worked with churches or start, helped start a church with Barn, Barnabas in, in that area uh, of, of, of the world, if you will. Comes back to Antioch, retools, reequips. Paul, uh, Paul and Barnabas split and go away. That's a message into itself. Barnabas goes this way. Paul takes Silas. He goes on another missionary journey, second missionary journey. This time he goes back to the same region. He hits back into the Galatia region. So he's circling back through and he goes all the way over to Greece, all the way down to Athens. He does this work. He hits about 15 different cities. He's probably the most productive of his time whenever he's on this journey. And he bases himself out of Ephesus. Now, you may not be able to see it on the map, but if you have Bibles in the back of your book, of your your Bible, then you'll be able to find it. But anyway, you find Ephesus here, and you'll find that that's where Paul for three years stationed himself. And he lived out his ministry, his life right there. And he did ministry out of Ephesus into that, into that area. But he doesn't stop there. He goes back, retools, re-enlist, uh, re, uh, re, um, uh, if you will. And he goes out a third time. This time he goes out even further. Now I want you to notice this. Every time Paul goes out, he goes back to the same places. He encourages the believers and he takes the gospel a little bit further, a little bit further, a little bit further. This time, he goes as far as Macedonia and Eliacrum, which is modern-day Croatia or uh, uh, Montenegro, and he goes to those areas of the world. In fact, the areas that you can't even see beyond this map. He goes as far north there, taking the gospel, presenting the gospel even further each time that he goes. This time, he's based out of Corinth, and it's on this journey, his third missionary journey, that he's in Corinth for three months, thereabouts, and he writes this letter to Rome using his little secretary, his amanuensis, and he writes and dictates out this letter to Rome, these believers in Rome. Now, why do I give you all that history? Because you all know enough about the Bible that Paul wrote most of the New Testament. Most of his writings were letters to churches. You can go right through the New Testament. You can name the cities, the towns, the places. He wrote up to four letters to Corinth. We only have two of them. So when you you think about this and you unpack this, most of the letters when you read them, there's some form of correction that he gives. To the church of Thessalonica, he kind of corrects them because they've got their eyes in the skies and they're waiting for the second coming of Christ. He says, listen, God's going to come like a thief in the night. You just be busy about the work of God. To the church of Ephesus, Paul actually, John wrote a letter to them and he basically says, you've lost your first love. You need to get back in love with Jesus again. He, he writes to uh, the church of Corinth, oh my gosh, they were a hot mess of immorality. He couldn't write enough to them to get them lined out, straightened out, and on the right track. So I love it when people say, I just want to be a part of a New Testament church. I say, which one do you want to be a part of? The lazy one, uh, Thessalonica, the, the immoral one, Corinth, or, or, or the one who lost his first love, Ephesus? Because you know, if you pick any of those churches, you're going to pick a dead church. There's going to have all kinds of problems and schisms and hypocrites and all that kind of stuff going on. So welcome to Grace Point Church. We're a bunch of hypocrites in this room. We're just like the New Testament church. I'm kidding. You're supposed to laugh at that part. <laughs> but the church of Rome. Paul didn't, Paul didn't start the church of Rome. 
know who started the church of Rome. It's been speculated that it was maybe on the day of Pentecost because there were some believers there from Rome and they heard the gospel presented from Peter and that they actually went back. It says that in, in, in Acts chapter 2, verse 10, I believe it is. It says, it talks about how they go from, uh, they go from Jerusalem, they go to back to Rome. So were those the believers who started the church in Rome? We don't know. Was it, uh, was it Priscilla and Aquila? Because Priscilla and Aquila were very instrumental, very foundational in Paul's journeys in life. And he praises them. And he, they're, they're disciple people, a husband and wife combo team. They're a, a dynamic duo to the point that they even have a house church. It mentions that in verse six, in chapter 16, that they had a house church in Rome. They lived in Corinth, but they had a house church. They had two homes, I guess. But as they're, as they're living out their, their life, they're starting a church in Rome. So maybe, maybe it's Priscilla and Aquila. Don't get lost in who it was, but get lost in this. The church at Rome was unique. I'm not saying they were perfect, but they have had a stamina. They have had a strength. They have had a vitality. They have had the ability to reproduce themselves. They've had the, the, the tenacity. They have not given up. They have been persecuted. They have lived through it. Remember, I said Romans is intense. And if we understand it that way, we understand Rome. But I want us to open our Bibles to chapter 15. That's where we're going to start today. In the back of the book, because that's where you always start your books, right? I'm dyslexic. That's the way I start my books. Verse 22, chapter 15. Again, we're going here because it gives us the greater context of Rome, Romans, Paul's relationship with them. He doesn't know them. He's never been there. We kind of get the, the picture of it this way, and, but we build it out. I want you to see more than anything, one of the verses I'm going to read, I want you to see the absolute anticipation and longing for Paul to be in Rome. So he says in verse 22, he says, This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now since I am no longer have any room for the work in these regions, because he had been done such great missionary work, he had started so many churches, they were going strong, they were able to handle it themselves. Since I long for many years to come to you, notice he said it again, I hope to see you in passing to go to Spain and to be helped by you on the journey there. Hang on to that phrase. We'll come back there. To be helped on my journey there by you. Once I have enjoyed your company for a while. I just want to come and hang out with you guys. You guys have, your faith is alive. Man, I, I need some of that in my life. I need to be encouraged in chapter one. We won't have time to go there today. But he literally says, listen, I want your faith to encourage me as much as I want to encourage you. So there's this, there's this like Paul needs Rome. Rome needs Paul. There's this, this beautiful synergy that's happening. Now go down to verse 28. He says, and therefore, when I've uh, completed this and have been delivered from, uh, delivered to them what has been collected, I'll talk about that in a little bit, I will leave to Spain by way of you. I'm coming to you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. So you can just hear in Paul's voice, I can't wait to get in your presence and to be with you. And then one last time, verse 32. So, that my, by God's will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. Refreshed, energized. When I talk about Rome, Rome was a church of vitality. Rome was a church of a movement. Rome was a church that was going someplace. And I, and I say that in the light of the reality of history. We know what happened in Rome. That was not where you worshiped Jesus. That's where you worshiped the emperor. Nero was the first of the emperors who was actually the, 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 the head of the state of Rome at this time when Paul's writing the church of Rome. And he was the first of all the emperors who enacted emperor worship. So you don't worship Jesus, you worship me the emperor. So what do they do? They keep worshiping Jesus. Nero wants to build a great name for himself. So what does he do? He burns the city of Rome. He wants to rebuild Rome in his own glory. While Rome is burning for nine days, he's on the rooftop of his house watching the Rome burn it and he's playing his harp. That's how sadistic this guy was. Well, whenever that backfired on him and he was about to be beheaded himself and taken care of himself, he said, I didn't do it. It was those Christians out there who did it. So what do they do? They take all the Christians along and they start beating them, killing them, 
slaughtering them, burning them literally at the stake like they were street lamps. They would tar them and put them on the stakes. And it was during the persecution of, 50, uh, uh, of 67 that, that, that Paul and Peter were believed to be executed. In the Roman Colosseum that tourists will go and visit, there has been so much Christian blood spilt in those, in, in those streets that literally that underneath the streets of, of Rome, there are these places called the catacombs. Fox's Book of Martyrs calls the, the, early, the, uh, the church in Rome that the early church of Rome might well have been called the church of the catacombs because there were so many believers that were killed for their faith. Again, let me remind you, Paul couldn't wait to get with them. What was it about these believers that made them so incredibly unique? that they would be willing to die for their faith, that they did not deny their faith, that they kept going on to this day. There has been a church alive, those who had his problems. There's been a church alive in this area of Rome since it ever began. I mean, wouldn't you think that if there's thousands, literally hundreds of thousands, there's so many catacombs that they believe that there were hundreds of thousands of Christians that were killed in Rome? Wouldn't you think that that would have extinguished the Christian population? It's a little mathematical equation. Multiplication became greater than subtraction. They were growing at such a rapid rate in the faith. So many people were coming to Christ. And I would become a Christian. Then I would lead three others to Christ. And I would lead, they would lead seven others to Christ. And they would lead, a, and it just became this. They couldn't control it. In three years, in 300 years, there were 10 state sanctioned persecutions from the emperors. From the time of Nero till the time of the 300s when Constantine legalized and made Christianity the state religion. Imagine this, against flowing against the stream of that day and age, all the persecution that was happening, all the schisms that were happening, but yet the church of God continued to multiply, continued to survive. Listen, that was a movement. I want to understand the movement of Rome. Here's one of the things you cannot get away from when you look at Rome, that they were making disciples. And what do we say a disciple around here is? A disciple is a fully obedient multiplier following Jesus. They were out multiplying faster than they could subtract them, faster than they could kill them. There was something that was going on in Rome. So I want us to unpack a little bit. Why was it that Paul so couldn't wait to get there? That he was literally looking past Rome. He, wasn't even, he was going to stop in Rome just to be encouraged and just to encourage them. He didn't write a letter to correct them. He wrote a letter to commend them. Why is it that Paul is, is so much looking past Rome to Spain? Because the church was so alive and well in Rome. And what is it about them that made them so unique and so incredible? I'm not saying they were perfect. I want to say that again and again and again. They were not perfect. There's not such thing as a perfect church. But there was something that was happening inside that church. And there are three marks, I think, that we can see in chapter 15 that show us what a healthy church, a healthy believer, a healthy follower of Christ looks like. One, jot them down. Multiplying maturity. It wasn't just maturity in their faith, but they were multiplying their maturity. They were investing the maturity that they were gaining into others. Now, I'm not saying that everybody in Rome were, were mature believers. In fact, you can read Romans chapter 14, verse 1, and you can see that when he addresses the, the weak in the faith. He says, as for the one who is weak in the faith, welcome him. Don't criticize him. Don't beat him down. Don't make him look small in, in your theological eyes, but welcome him. Don't quarrel. And then the rest of chapter 14, you can read it for yourself, is how to work with, non, with, with young believers, weak believers. If, if they're struggling in their faith, then you need to, as a mature believer, be patient with them. Work with them. And again, I don't have time to break down verse four, uh, chapter 14. Just take my word for it and read it for yourself right now. Because I want to compare and contrast verse chapter 14, verse 1, with chapter 15, verse 1. One chapter later, look at verse 15, verse 1. Now he's going to start talking to the strong believers. We who are strong have an obligation 
to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. See, a strong Christian believer, let me tell you what a strong Christian believer looks like. It's not the person who's got all his Bible all marked up, who can tell you about his prayer journals and all the times that they're praying, who's got everything figured out theologically in their little theological buckets. Let me tell you, it's the person who doesn't think of himself, but thinks of others enough that he's pouring himself into them. Listen, the ones who are strong, they have an obligation to the weak. We, we've struggled as, a, as Grace Point Church. I'm just being fully transparent. Have we done well as a pastoral team in raising up mature church? It's not focusing on ourselves, but we're focusing on others. We're pouring into others. We're multiplying ourselves. In fact, we've even struggled, and I'll just be really frank with you and transparent with you, we've struggled with what does a mature Christian look like? What does a mature Christian smell like, act like? What do they look like? So it actually is in verse 14. You go down a little bit further. He gives us, I think, one of the most clear, concise definitions of what a mature Christian looks like. So I will say this. It would be my goal that if we looked across our church that these would be the marks of the believers in our church, that I myself am satisfied. Notice what he said. I myself am satisfied about you. Paul says, hey, listen, when I look at your life, when I measure your life in the light of everything else, I like what I see. I don't have to stay in Rome. I can keep going to Spain. You're, you're good. You're, you're growing in the faith. And then he gives us three qualifiers. And you can jot these three qualifiers down, if you will, or three signs of, of what it means to be a healthy believer. One is there's a character quotient here. You yourselves are full of goodness. Now, understand that. He's not saying, hey, you know how to be good. You know how to do good. You are good. Being before doing, it's not just doing good. You are good. Down inside, you're full of goodness. There's a goodness. There's a character quality in you that comes out of you. He didn't just say, go do good things. Go help the poor and help the sick. He said, listen, no, there's something inside of you that your character's been changed. It's shaping who you are. You are a good person. Listen, God points to this all the time. Jesus points to this in Luke 6, 45. He says, a good person produces good things. That's good, right? Good person does good. But where does it come from? From the treasury of a good heart. That's his character. And an evil person does evil things, right? Where does that come from? The treasury of an evil heart. Even people who speak badly are good. Where does that come from? It doesn't come from their mouth, it comes from their head, it comes from their heart. But he looks at Rome and he says, listen, Rome, you're full of goodness from the inside out. And what we're going to talk about in this series is how to make sure that we are being transformed from the inside out. When Paul looked at Rome, he said, you are full. Your character to the core is good. John Wooden, great basketball coach, UCLA championships, all that kind of stuff. But what really made him great was the character development of his players. He was most concerned with who they were as a person, not just who they were on the basketball court. And he literally would distinguish between them. Listen, beware of your reputation, but be most cautious of your character. So your reputation is what people say about your character is who you are. Beware of your character. See, people who have been truly transformed from the good, they understand what right and wrong is. They understand what a wise decision is and an unwise decision is. But they're able to make wise decisions. We're going to read in chapter 1 when we get over there in a couple of weeks. We're going to see how they can't make decisions right because they have done away with what's right and what's wrong. And when you do away from what's right and what's wrong, then you no longer can make good decisions. There's no longer goodness filling you. Beware of that. Belief, quotent. He also goes on and talks about being filled with all knowledge. God doesn't do his discipleship in a vacuum. You 
if this book is not a part of your life, if the truth of this book is not a part of your life, if you're not memorizing this, if you're not praying this into your life, if you're not sharing this with other people, listen, it's not going to happen. He said, you're filled with all knowledge. You you know what's right. You, You know what the truth is. The disciples make disciples who make disciples, okay? They make disciples with this truth. There were six different times that Paul said, follow my example. 20 different times Jesus said, follow me. He doesn't do that in a vacuum. He goes along and all along he's teaching. Paul all along is writing. He's all, all along giving the truth that needs to be given. See, we teach what we know, but we reproduce who we are. And a real disciple has a deep awareness of the things of God. Which then leads me to the transfer quote. You're able to transfer. He says, you, you, you are able to instruct one another. You're able to give truth to one another. You're able to make disciples who make disciples with one another. On and on. I can, I can think of, about what, growing up in a church all my life. I went to church nine months before I was born. You do the math on that. So all I knew is church, okay? And so... Went to church all my life, but it wasn't until I was a freshman in college that I can really say that somebody said, Mike, let's walk together. And it was a professor of mine. It wasn't even a professor. I didn't have him for any of my classes. But he was from New Zealand who believed in making disciples. And the first thing he does is he invites me to his house on Friday mornings at 6 a.m. As a college student, going anywhere at 6 a.m. in the morning is not in your planner, okay? And, but yet he walked with me, and I walked with him for three years, and he just made a disciple of me, giving me everything he had, challenging me to memorize Scripture, to be in the Word, to journal. And you know what? Ever since that time, for 28 years of ministry, I have met with men at 6 a.m. in the morning because I want to walk with men who want to walk with God, who want to help other people walk with God. Discipleship. There's this transference of the faith. There's this deep knowledge. There's this full of truth. The way Paul describes I'm satisfied with you. You're in the right position. You're going in the right direction. You're full of goodness. You're full of knowledge. And you're able to instruct others. Let me talk about the second quality of this movement-making church is they were strategic in their generosity. They were very strategic in their generosity. Paul writes the letter to introduce himself to a lot of believers. He writes the letter to, to give them theological training. That's what most of the book is about, what most people think of when they think of Romans. But actually also writes to them saying, hey, I need your financial help. I, I'm, I've got a work I'm about here. The work of God in, hey, Rome, I need you to invest in the work of God that I'm about. Now, I realize this, that when you start talking about money, you start getting people nervous in the church. When preachers start talking about money, you get, I had somebody about tw- when I was 20 years ago in the ministry, put his arms around me and said, Mike, when you talk about money in the church, people are going to get nervous. And then, and then he said, but those are the thieves. Only thieves get nervous when you talk about money. He said, when you, when you talk about money in the church and those who have been generous in the church, they're actually going to sit on the edge of their seat and they're going to feel the affirmation that, hey, I'm doing the right thing. This is the right thing to do. My sacrifices as a family, this is a good thing. We're investing in a good, in a good thing. So I want, I want to point this out to you that a fully obedient follower of Christ is a person who's generous in their giving, not stingy. In fact, the money is the single most measurable indicator of a person's faith. Okay, how, Mike, how do you say that? That's an awful bold move to say. It's the single most. I mean, what about their prayer journals? What about their, their logged time in the Word? No. Look what Jesus said. Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Don't, don't show me your prayer journal. I don't want to measure that. You want, you want to measure your faith? Don't show me the hours that you spend in the Word. All that's important. But show me your bank statement. Because that will tell me where your heart is. That will tell me 
where your commitment is. Jesus said more about money than about heaven or hell or prayer in the scriptures. Think about it like this, that Grace Point's budget, ministry budget, is the sum of our people's worship of a holy God. What we really believe about God says more, is said more loudly through our money than any other means. When you look at this church, this church of Rome, they were generous. Paul asked them to give to a movement that was a mission of the church. In Romans chapter 15, he says it in verse 19. He said, By the power of the signs and the wonders and the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and all around Iricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. So I've been all over this area, northern Macedonia area. I've been all through Greece. I've been all through Turkey. And the work is going. It's sustainable. And thus I, I, take, uh, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel where the Christ has not already been named. So he's a missionary going pressing back into the frontier of lostness and to build on someone else's foundation. So this is what Paul was at. Listen, I'm on mission with God. When we give, we have to ask ourselves at Grace Point Church, how much of our giving is helping to take the gospel to the unreached places of this world? I want us to continue to give to the unreached places, to the organizations, the people that go from our church and to our teams that go out to the nations. But it's also a gracious ministry of the church. Paul wanted to go to Rome, but he was in Corinth. If you remember, Rome was just across the sea and he could have gone straight to Rome, but instead he goes back to Jerusalem. Back to Jerusalem. Why would you go back to Jerusalem? Because he's carrying an offering with him. An offering that had been collected from the churches in that region. Look at verse 24. He says, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain to be helped on my journey. He's saying, hey, listen, I need your help on the journey. There, once I've enjoyed your company for a while, and at present, however, I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints because there had been a famine in the land. And Jerusalem was, was starving to death, basically. And what I love about this is you see the breaking down of racial barriers here where there was the Gentile churches of Achaia, Macedonia, that collected an offering and they were sending it back out of grace and goodness of their hearts. They were sending it back to Jerusalem where there were Jewish believers to help them out. Racial divides are taken down in situations like this when the gospel is penetrated in the poor among the saints in Jerusalem for they, I love the statement, for they were pleased to do it. They were pleased to give their offerings so that it would help the other believers out. Here's what I want to challenge you. What does your giving say about what you believe about God? What does your giving say about your commitment to pushing back the darkness? What does your giving say about what you want to do in helping humanity live, walk, closer to Christ. And I promise when you do it, you will find pleasure in it. Now, now, I've heard it said like this, God will take it. Hey, God loves a cheerful giver, but he'll take it from a grouch. I think what, if you'll learn this, if you'll learn to give from a joyous heart, you'll find pleasure in giving. You'll find joy in giving. One last thing. When you look at this church in Rome, I'm not saying they're perfect. I'm not saying that at all. They had all kinds of problems. They kind of materialize and develop over the years. But here's one thing about them. They also had agonizing prayer. They were committed to praying for one another. I don't have time to read chapter 1, verses 9 through 12, but Paul opens up his letter by praying continually every day for believers in Rome of which he didn't, had never been to Rome. I love it that he's praying for people he's never met before. Did he know some people in Rome? Yes, I said that. 24 people are mentioned in chapter 16. But there's a whole church that's multiplying faster than they can kill them there. 
that is growing in Rome. And he is praying for them every day. There's this multi-interdependence that happens when we realize the power of prayer. When Paul prayed for them, and then he said, hey, I want you to pray for me. Verse 30, he said, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ, by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers. Six different times in Romans alone, Paul is either praying or calling on them to pray or asking them to join him in prayer. Strive with me together in your prayers. Now, what is that strive? That word strive, that's why we get the word agonize. It's the, it's the Greek word agon, which is where we get the word agonize. You literally are agonizing in prayer. You're working in prayer. You realize the power of prayer. You're spending energy in prayer. It's not this just one-off prayer as you go. It is something you're agonizing over. It was said of Epaphras in Colossians chapter 4, verse 12, who was the pastor of Colossae Church, that he was struggling on your behalf in prayer. Prayer is one of those things that we can agonize together. When I think about prayer, I've studied great people of prayer to learn how to pray. People like Ian Bounds and C.H. Spurgeon. But one of my favorites, Richard Foster, his book on prayer is my absolute favorite book on prayer. But one of those just in a caliber and of a level that I am not is a guy by the name of George Mueller. This guy can document that he saw 5,000 prayers answered in one day. This guy was a man of prayer and faith. Got stories that he would do things. I I can't imagine having the faith that that Mueller had. But he tells the story of four people, or just told the story of of him, of four people that that were far from God that he was praying for. The first one, then he started praying for this person within... A short time, one man, the first man within a few months gave himself to Christ. The second one, 10 years later, but Mueller kept praying for him for all 10 years. The third man, 25 years later, praying for this one man to come to faith. Some of y'all have family members, fathers, mothers, children who are not walking with God and you're like, I can't pray for him any longer. I'm tired. Keep praying for him. 25 years for one of his friends to come to faith in Christ. Another one, 63 years and eight months before Mueller finally died. And his fourth friend never came to know Christ while Mueller was living. But before Mueller's body was in the grave, that man looked at his life and reflected on Mueller's life. He said, that Mueller guy was a follower of Christ. I want to be like him. And he gave himself to following Christ. Don't stop praying. Agonize in prayer. We've got to be a church that agonizes for our students this coming weekend. Take that prayer sheet, but man, you agonize for them. And you agonize for our children's ministry. And you agonize for our one another's. And you agonize for other people in our church. We have got to be a church of prayer if we're going to be a church that is a movement and not a monument. I got this email. Now, anybody who would email a pastor during church, call him, text him. Not, I got it last, two Sundays ago, I was sitting on the front row when Ron Dill was, was, was speaking. I got this email. I looked at my watch, saw what it was. I looked at it later, and this is what it said. Hi, Mike. I am brother of, and it gave me the name of the, of the person that's in this room. My mom prayed without ceasing for my brother for more than 30 years. Even after the rest of my brothers and sisters gave up and I gave up, you were the answer to her faithful prayers. Please encourage Grace Point to never stop praying. Notice this last statement. Please encourage Grace Point to never stop being an answer to prayers. When I read that, I just cried. Because my God, I don't want to be simply another church that's going to die in a few years. I want us to be multiplying. I want us to be giving graciously and strategically so that we can push back the darkness, so that we can reach into our own community, 
And I want us praying. Aggressive, agonizing prayers wherever God places us. Would you bow your heads with me? Just just be still. Just listen. Listen to the still small voice of God. Which of these three are you lacking? Are you a multiplier of your faith? If you can't think of one, two, three, four people right now that you are intentionally developing in the faith, what's that going to take to get you back in the multiplying game? If you're a person who's holding back and holding out on just giving graciously, generously, graciously to the mission and the ministry of our church, what's it going to take? What's it going to take? If prayer is something that you will only do whenever we have a prayer campaign and we send you a text that tells you to pray, what's it going to take for prayer to become the fuel in your life that takes you further, that takes you deeper, that causes you to impact the world? Will you agonize over souls of people for 30 years? Father God, climbing mountains and climbing this mountain is not for the faint at heart. And Father, it's not that Rome was perfect. It was far from it. But there was something about those early believers. They had a passion to see others come to know you even at the expense of their own life, there was something about the early church at Rome that, that they had a, had a fullness and a, 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 of goodness in them and a fullness in the knowledge. And, a, and they, they had a level of, of, of being able to transfer their faith onto others that, God, I pray we have. Become mighty multipliers of the faith. But, Lord, also that we become generous, deep pocket divers, willing to give like we've never given before. God, help us to remove the distractions, the little idols that have become more important than generosity to the mission and the mission ministry of God. And God, take us to our knees where we do what Paul says six different times in Scripture in Romans alone. Pray. I need you to pray. I'm praying for you every day. Lord, interconnect us, interweave us together where we become men and women, students of prayer. May we start this weekend by praying for our students. May we start today by praying for the people in our life that are far from you. We bless you. Be the cornerstone of our life that we build our life on moving forward. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and worship with us?